0: Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Amen. Dwayne's like, oh, is that the end? Good. <laughs> um, I'd encourage you to turn to the two passages that are going to be the passages that we'll, we'll really focus on today, uh, because there are two, and they're not going to be up behind me. So go ahead and turn to Third John. It's only one chapter. We'll start at the beginning. So just find Third John toward the end, and then also Hebrews thirteen, verse seventeen. Hebrews thirteen, verse seventeen. And the nice thing about having a, an actual Bible which I'm not critiquing, I use my phone all the time, but the nice thing about having an actual Bible is you can put your finger in two, you know, two fingers in two places. So I'd encourage you to do that. You know, last week, Steve talked about the diversity of the body, uh, specifically with regards to the diversity of our gifts and how those should be honored, those gifts should be honored and expressed in the life of the church community toward one another. Um, Sometimes those gifts, though, are produced, well, they are such they are the kind of gifts that produce another kind of diversity within the body, and that's what we're going to be talking about today: the diversity of office, uh, the diversity that uh, of authority and submission. Uh, some of these gifts produce elders and deacons who are called to wield those gifts not simply for the good of the sheep, but with the unique and weighty responsibility of caring for fellow sheep and the authority that makes the success of this responsibility even possible. So today, we're going to take a brief look at the, this relationship. I hope that we'll walk away with a new eagerness and a new excitement to live out our respective roles within the church. So please stand. We're going to start with uh, 3 John. I'm going to start with verse 4. It's very simple. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And then the next passage is Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that even as we're here this morning and the topic of authority and office and submission and obedience and all these things um, will be running through our minds and our hearts. We ask that this would all begin with a desire to submit to you. No matter our gifts, no matter our offices, that would be our heart, a heart of surrender, a heart of trust, a heart of obedience and a desire to bring you joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have any of you ever, when, when I think of, please be seated, thank you. Um, you obeyed even before I asked. This is a good encouraging sign. Um, so, I, I, I think of a cartoon, one of the old like Wile E. Coyote cartoons where Wiley e. Coyote is trying to kill the, the, not the ostrich, what is it, the uh, roadrunner, thank you. Ostrich, at roadrunner, the bird that runs fast. And you know, he's going to use dynamite, for instance. And at some point, somehow, um, the dynamite, instead of blowing the, the bird up, the road, end up, ends up blowing him up. And I, I kind of feel like that's what Steve has done for me today, that he's turned around and handed me this sweating dynamite. Because he got to talk about all these lovely things, you know, oh, you, God has given you gifts, and they're diverse, and you get to bless one another. And I get the last, you know, the, the, I guess the, the pinnacle I get to talk about obedience and submission and rule and authority. And it's kind of, I feel kind of like if I had been asked to, to preach on or to speak on uh, being a husband. And I would feel fine about doing that as long as my wife wasn't in the audience. But if my wife is in the audience, and Steve has to deal with this on a regular basis, so I do feel for him. Um, she knows, really. Your husbands are supposed to do that? Well, why didn't you do that, right? He, she knows all of the weaknesses and the foibles and the, the sins. If I were to be asked to preach on, on parenting, and I'd be fine with that as long as my children weren't in the audience because they've had a front row seat to my circus. It's, it's, uh, it's embarrassing. It feels hypocritical. Because I'm not perfect, and Steve and Dave are not perfect. We don't do anything perfectly, let alone rule. And so I approach today's topic, and I genuinely ask, who am I to talk about these things? I feel that way standing here before you, having been tasked by the other two elders to talk to you about this relationship of the church leadership to the laity The shepherds to the sheep, spiritual fathers to children. But I really do wonder, as I was preparing, I'm thinking, what issues, what needs have we, have I missed over the years? Who? Who have I missed? Who have we missed? Who has not felt cared for? What have we forgotten? Who's going to remind us in a text or an email this week I know my failings personally. I can be impatient with people. I know some of you are thinking, Amen. I can love myself and my plans more than you. My passions sometimes rule my judgment and produce irritation. I speak before I think. I don't pray for you as I ought. I don't know all of you the way that I ought. As most of you know, I just celebrated recently the 10th anniversary of my 36th birthday, and yet I'm still not as old as I'd like to be. That's not a sin, but it is a weakness because I don't have all the experience and therefore the wisdom that I would like. These are weaknesses that I, as I'm sitting here, or as I was sitting there this week preparing, who am I to talk of these things? How did such an imperfect man end up here in front of you all? How did the three of us, Steve, Dave, and I, get this job? What gives us the right to speak to you? Yeah, each of us went through the gauntlet of examination and ordination by the presbytery and a call and an installation by you all. But in the end, we end up here as many natural fathers end up as natural fathers, having been called to that position by the providence of a sovereign God. Not strong enough. Can you relate, fathers? Natural fathers? Not strong enough. Not wise enough. Not experienced enough. And yet, here you are as fathers. We are the very kind of weak clay that God's strong hands enjoy working with. God has placed us here and in this position, and so we seek to take up that responsibility and to wield that authority, not as perfect men, but like you all in the grace of God, resting in his strength and in his promises. And I use the analogy of a father or the picture of a father being cast into that role, not ready, not able And that's an appropriate way to think of the position of an elder. The church is a family. We talk about that a lot. And elders or pastors are called to care for each local family as a father would. And shepherding, shepherding is an appropriate way to think of our position. We have been called to shepherd the flock of God. So we're called to be fathers to a family, we're called to be shepherds to a flock. But we are not sheepdogs. Some strange and biting animal different from you. Here's the odd thing about what God has done. Though some of us do bite at times, we are not sheep dogs, we are sheep, sheep. We are sheeping, sheep. We're just sheep like you who've been called to shepherd, shepherding, sheep. Not the great shepherd, but under shepherds. And so, together, we are a flock. We are a family. It's this framework of flock and family that we need to keep in mind as we read the words from our text today. The men who wrote these words, the John and the author of Hebrews, the men who wrote these words wrote them as spiritual fathers and as spiritual shepherds. They saw their responsibility to the members of the local bodies that God had given them charge over as responsibilities of fathers to children they recognize that God does not give you the responsibility to carry out a duty without the ability and the authority to carry it out successfully. And that was, that's good news. God, as the consummate, perfect father, never sets up his children for failure. God, as the consummate, perfect shepherd, provides for all the needs of his sheep. And so, hear the words of a father. Hear the words of a shepherd. Same words we read, but think of them as they were intended. Words of a father. The elder. This is from 3 John, right at the beginning. The elder, that's John. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, and I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. To read those beautiful words and then to launch into some dry context of the history and context and so forth seems somehow inappropriate, but I actually think that the context will make his words a bit more vibrant and alive. And so John was writing near the end of his ministry when he said these things. And like many men at the end of a long road of suffering ministry, the growth and success and faith of a man receptive to his ministry would have been a particularly enlivening refreshment to his soul. This short epistle from John was written to a man named Gaius. It was prompted as a way of encouraging this man to continue to behave in the hospitable manner appropriate to Christians. Encouraging this man, particularly offering hospitality to traveling ministers of the gospel. This was in contrast, so he's looking at Gaius, offering hospitality to these traveling ministers of the gospel, and he's comparing him to another man, a leader in that vicinity, a man named Diotrephes, who was refusing to give traveling and visiting ministers the hospitality that was appropriate. He, was, he liked his authority, he liked his position, and he didn't want it hindered by other men coming and proclaiming the same message. So this letter was written in the midst of controversy, accusation, backbiting, disunity. There were pressures to give in, to capitulate, to avoid drama, and this letter serves as a very personal note to a man in the midst of the struggle and fight. Gaius, through his simple acts of faithful obedience, was bringing light to darkness and unity to a local church threatening to fracture under the weight of disunity and schism. How does John here describe himself? Well, he describes himself as the elder. I'm not sure what word, what, what picture is conjured up by that word because it's, it's similar to the word deacon. Deacon is a word that can mean just literally servant. Um, Ian Dow's not here, but Ian is a deacon. You've seen him when he's here, wandering around, just serving. He, he bears no office, and yet he serves. He's a deacon. So that word literally mean, meaning servant can be used, used that way to describe somebody who serves. But it can also serve as the word for the office of deacon. And it's the same thing with elder. What two, word, what two meanings does the word elder have in, in the context of the Bible? Well, it means somebody's old. I don't know who was just conjured up in your mind there. We'll refrain from asking. But uh, it can just mean old. Or it can mean the office of the elder. And it's not clear from this context when he says the elder... If he's just talking about, I'm coming to you as an older man, or I'm coming to you at, in the office. But we do know this, that John was an apostle. He's older, and so he brings with him the authority of age, and he brings with him the authority of office. Whether it was elder or not, he certainly came with the authority of the, of the apostle. So he's coming as an older man, he's coming as an apostle. And this is a really personal letter. It's the only letter, not the only letter, it's one of the only letters that was written specifically to one person. Most letters were written to churches. But the, tr- the tone is strikingly intimate. Look back at that text at the beginning of, of chapter, not chapter, of 3rd uh, uh, John, chapter 1, the only one's there. Look at the first 12 verses. How many times does John tell Gaius that he loves him? The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, dot, dot, dot. Twelve words, and he tells him three times, in twelve words. Twenty-five percent of the words that he uses to open up this epistle, this letter to this man Gaius. He tells him he loves him. Beloved Gaius. Do you know what that means? Loved. Whom I love. Beloved How does that make you feel? A bit much, a bit over the top? Okay. Three times in that few words. But if we feel so we're, we're, if we feel so, if that's, if that's odd to you, then a few things are probably happening here, and one is that we're missing the essential elements of what it means to not only be a Christian, but we, to, me, to be a member of the Christian community. John 13, so this is from John's uh, gospel, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And how are we to do this? Like I've loved you, Jesus says. Jesus loved us to the bitter end. And then Jesus loved us to the glorious end. To the cross and to the crown. So we do well if that, if those, if that picture or that, those words of love seem odd to our ears, then we deserve a, a bit of loving chastisement. We need, we need to be instructed and inspired by this example. And then the 13th word, look at the 13th word. Beloved, it says I pray in English, but that's one Greek word to mean I pray. He prays. What does he pray for? How does he express this love? He says that I pray that all may go well with you. So he's got this concern for Gaius' general well-being, He then says that that you may be in good health. Gaius' physical body is of great concern to his spiritual father. And then he says, as it goes well with your soul. John loves Gaius in body and in soul, just like the great shepherd Jesus. John loves this man. He expresses his love through prayer. And this prayer is not simply for the man's soul, but for everything that makes up the man, his body, his soul, and the entire context of his life. John is observing that through a distance. He's heard a recounting from people who were visiting. But he, he observed that Gaius was choosing to truly live out the truths that he said he professed. Even in the midst of controversy, even in the midst of difficulty. It was this life of truth that had a special impact on John. In verse 3 and 4, we hear this. For I greatly Rejoiced. When the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, and again, here it is, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Notice that he says, rejoiced and joy, but what kind? He says that I greatly rejoice. That word has this picture, to greatly rejoice, of exceeding, extreme Vigorous. Think about vigorous exercise. John's soul, this, the apostle's soul, the elder's soul, the leader's soul, was made vigorous in joy. Simply by hearing of Gaius' growth in truth. This joy filled John up exceedingly and the boundaries of his heart were exceeded and it just poured over in Joy. And this is not simply the joy of a friend for one another, though he calls him friend. John chooses this particular framing of father to help us understand the kind of affection that he had for Gaius. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. These aren't unfamiliar words or sentiments for John. In John chapter 2... A letter to a Christian woman, we hear these similar words. This is If you were to go back and look at the previous letter, he says this. The elder, sounds familiar, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, peace be with you all, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice, there it is again, greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. We hear these same thoughts. He loves her. He is brought brought joy because of her faithful walk in the truth. The obedience to the truth is is an expression of her love for God. And he, as with Gaius, calls her his child. Any father understands the precious and unique love that a parent has for a child. The great heart desire to see that child's best, to see the blessing of that child, and for a Christian parent, the greatest joy that can be found is to see that child grow into a man or a woman passionate for King Jesus, eager and equipped to live the faith out in every part of his life. When a parent is assured of this, No matter what else may come, he can die happy. Sadly, the alternative is true. There's no greater grief that we can experience as parents than when we we don't see that fruit. But that was not John's experience with Gaius or with the elect lady. In Gaius, John saw a spiritual child, a son in the faith, walking in truth, and as he surveyed the, the pantry of joys that he could choose from, just a whole... Shelf full of joys. He said, there's not one that I find more joyful than to see my child walking in truth. As challenging as this may be to many of us, this is a beautiful description of the kind of relationship that a pastor, a leader in the church ought to have toward his spiritual children and that they ought to have toward him. But this has all been a description. We see this beautiful picture of something that was going on. In Hebrews 13, we see something different. We don't see a description, we see a prescription. We don't see simply an objective recounting of what was or what is. We see an authoritative declaration of what ought to be. And so in this text, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 13:17. Here's some challenging words. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Two words that we do not like those words. Obey and submit. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. There's significant controversy over who the author of Hebrews was, but there is no debate as to the primary purpose for which it was written. In the turbulent period of transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, as realities overtook shadows, there was a temptation on the part of the Jews who had become converts to Christianity to turn back, to go from the reality to the shadows, from temple and sacrifice or two-temple and two-sacrifice into the prefiguring ceremonies. And so the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to describe the great realities of the new covenant, having been established by the historical advent of Jesus, the Messiah. He compares the old and the new covenants and announces the greatness of Jesus compared with the angels and the law and Moses. And then he, he, he calls them dramatically not to fall back to the shadows. Don't give up the reality of Jesus as... As uncomfortable as it might be for the more comfortable shadows, don't do it. He calls out to them. And here at the end of this sermon or letter from the, the author of Hebrews, whoever he might be, he says these words, "Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority." He's transitioned the whole up to this point it's all been this theog- theological treatise, and now the application of this theological, these theological truths is: have confidence in your leaders, submit to their authority. Why? No one wants a boss. We naturally recoil at authority. But he tells us why we should submit. And maybe it's important for me to mention too, um, I have to submit. I submit to the other elders. That's why in Presbyterian polity, we don't have one elder. I submit to them. They submit to me. We submit to the Presbytery. So it's important just to recognize when we're talking about authority and submission, every man is under authority. There is no top dog except for King Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But he does tell us to submit. Why? Because in this world we need shepherds to keep us from falling off cliffs, to warn us, to guard us. We need that, we need fathers. To give us wisdom, we need the loving counsel of fathers and hard truths for our good. We need the strength of fathers in our homes and in the house of God. Like a shepherd or a father, we see the role of the elders summarized in this way The task of the elders is nothing more, and I tremble to even utter them. The task of the elders, this enormous task, is to watch over your souls. That task has been appointed. None of us have grabbed for it. It sounds absurd, but the words are there. To be believed, to be denied, or to be ignored. And as with most children, you're apt to ask when given a command like this, Why? Why again? Okay, you've, you've given me one answer, but why? I'm not convinced yet. Give me a why. Well, the author of Hebrews continues to go on, and he says this. It is to your advantage. It's for your good. And these spiritual fathers are responsible. They will have to give an account. It's not good enough to practice mere submission, though. When your children obey, and the only reason that they're The, the classic example I think of when it comes to really obedience that's just fake obedience is the little kid when you say "Don't touch the light switch," and here's the light switch, and their hand goes like this, and it stops right there. Okay, every parent knows that is not obedience. That's that's rebellion. Didn't touch. But you can see in that moment the heart. God is not pleased with that kind of obedience. Lip service regarding confidence in your elders, just saying, yeah, yeah, I have confidence, is not that's not acceptable to God. The kind of confidence, the kind of submission that pleases God is the kind that seeks the joy of those who carry the burden. It struck me as I was preparing for this early on and it really formed the, the theme in the rest of the sermon today that in both context John and the author of Hebrews they speak about joy in the context of this relationship of elders and their, their sheep, joy if you're to do what, like I did, just a simple word search and just type in joy and then see what comes up in the Bible Listen to this. This is really fascinating. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. This is 2 Corinthians, so it's Paul. I'm greatly encouraged. In all of our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Why? Because he's looking at them. He sees them. He says, my joy knows no bounds. Again, from 2 Corinthians. And not only this... Uh, Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you you had given him, he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. In Philippians, he's writing to another church and he says something similar. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Later on in Philippians, toward the end, he says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and whom I long for, my joy and my crown. And in writing to the Thessalonians, Paul says, For what is our hope? What is our joy? What is the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? What is my joy? What is my hope? What is my crown? Is it not you? Thessalonian Christians... Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Later on in in the same letter, he says, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? In writing to Timothy, he says, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. And then lastly, in the letter to Philemon, he says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement. This joy, it's not one directional. It's notable that, that most of the joy passages are about the joy that the sheep bring to the shepherds. But don't miss this fact we hear in Philippians. It was more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So he's talking about, he wants to go be with Jesus. His body and his soul have been racked for years I just want to go with, be with Jesus but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body so convinced of this I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you why? for your progress and joy in the faith later on he says not, not that we lord it over you which I know when we talk yeah, there's sermons on authority and submission in the church that's one of the main concerns how, well? how is this going to be wielded he says, no, we, it's not that, we don't want to lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. To any parent, this makes sense. We find a unique and a uniquely profound joy in the joy of our children. Your elders, Steve, Dave, and I are no exception. You, many of you have given us a lot of joy, Not because you're walking perfectly, but because you're walking. Sometimes it's the the walk of a a small child, just learning how to walk for the first time. But you're allowing us to see that, and it brings us joy. Well, what is joy? I think most of us, and if this is new for you children, if you've not thought about joy or an older adult, what is joy? Joy. Well, I think those of us who have taken some time to think about what the Bible, how the Bible uses that word, we've come to the conclusion, or at least a partial conclusion, that joy is more than simply a synonym for happiness. I think it's helpful to recognize that there's a a certain pleasure that is dependent upon our circumstances, but this pleasure can come and go. The feelings rise, the feelings fall, often dependent on simple and base things like what you've eaten that day, or whether or not you've eaten Whether you've received a bit of bad news or maybe you received a lot of bad news. And yeah, that can steal your happiness. But there's another experience, what we properly call joy, that is not dependent upon our circumstances. The state of our stomach doesn't affect it. The state of our bank account, the state of our marriage, the state of our children does not affect it. John Piper says this regarding joy. He's talking about spiritual affections. Spiritual affections. And he, he describes some of the attributes of sp- what are spiritual affections? Savoring, relishing, being satisfied in, delighting in. These are the ingredients of joy. He's talking about a joy cake. As ingredients, what is the joy cake composed of? If you were to go to the pantry again and you were to pull off the ingredients to make a cake of joy, what would it be? Well, I'm going to pull off this, this bottle of savoring. I'm going to grab this, this container of relishing. Well, there's, there's the being satisfied, and there's the delighting. These are all ingredients of joy. We hear this in John toward Gaius. John savored the success. Of Gaius, John relished in the faith of Gaius. He found satisfaction in watching his spiritual son stand in the midst of challenge. He delighted in this man, and it brought him joy. Now, oftentimes when we counsel our children, we want you to have joy, so obey. We want you, child, to have joy. So you obey so that you might experience joy. But that's not what he says here. He doesn't say obey so that you can experience joy. His appeal to the the Philippian Christians is not that they would obey for their own happiness, though that isn't excluded, but that they would obey for his happiness. In Philippians 2, he says this, "Make, make my joy complete. Make my joy. Paul is saying make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one of one spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering others better than yourselves. You obey, not just so you can have joy, but so you can bring joy to those who rule over you. It's kind of odd. But not really. In this, we see a, a dim, but a profound reflection of the triune family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The the Father and the Son are mutually concerned with and find joy in bringing joy to one another. This is done by recognizing, not not by ignoring the different roles that each play. Jesus was well aware of the authority that he was under and submitted in joy to that authority. And the Father, he looks upon the Son with affection and satisfaction and delight. He looks on the Son with joy. So if we walk away from this sermon today with one thought, here it is, I think I'd want it to simply be that we should be pursuing vigorously and proactively an atmosphere of joy. More particularly that as we think about the relationship of the elders and the deacons and the and the sheep that are being served by them and led by them, that we should be seeking the mutual joy of one another in that respect. You should think How can I bring joy to Steve today? How can can I live in such a way that Dave will delight in what God is doing in my life? And we can know, as elders, if we're aiming at the right mark, if our work on your behalf is bringing you the joy that we seek and that you desire, And this joy is tethered to. This joy, it finds its life-giving sap in the context or root of love. Think about the joy. When I think of some things that bring me joy, I immediately think of, like, sunsets and things like that. Grand vistas. It's how I'm, I think, how I'm built. There's no relationship there, really. I mean, it's an inanimate object. It's not even an object. It's a It's a, a vista but even there we find in seemingly, seemingly lifeless experiences like the beauty of a sunset or, or the satisfaction of a, of a symphony, they, they ring the chords of our souls because they point us as blind as we may be to the one who has been so kind to us that these are gifts from a good gift giver. A sunset reminds us that God is there that he is love and that he deserves our love. And that, that's why we find joy in inanimate things because it points us to the animator of all things. Even, even the joy a non Christian can have. Imagine, a, you know, we have a baby coming, a grandchild for the first time. And I'm, I'm imagining what that will be like to hold a baby for the, the grandchild for the first time. Well, that joy that I know that I will experience is not just for Christians. But how is it, since these joys really are supposed to point us to the giver of all these good gifts and these... Well, How is it that a, a non-Christian can experience that? Because they do. Well, if they had ears to hear or eyes to see, they would see... They would see the God who had given them that moment, who had given them that child... And no matter how much they want to suppress it, they can't. They joy in that child because in their heart of hearts, down below what they've suppressed, they know the God who has given them that gift. The problem is that they're not not acknowledging it. So we find joy in God by not doing what the unbeliever would do in that moment and ignoring God, but by actually loving him. If we're to gain and to give this joy. So if this, if this is going to be something we're aiming for, how can, I, how can I love, how can I bring joy? And then name the congregant, name the, name the sheep. If that's, if, that Dave, is that, if that's Dave and Steve and I's goal, as we think about our job, I want to bring joy. If that's your job, how can I bring the elders joy? How do we do that? Well, the question is, that flows from love, love for God. And so how do we love God? Well, first we find our greatest delight in him, but then we obey him. Jesus tells us, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And notice where John found the great joy that he's, he's, he experienced. It was in watching his spiritual children walking in truth. They were obeying. They were loving God through their obedience, So as we near, near, as we near the end of our time together today, how are we going to put this into practice? What are the particular duties of the sheep? How can you bring us joy, and what, what, is, what are our duties? Well, this—I just put together a list. It's certainly not exhaustive. I may very well have missed some important things here, but I thought it was a good start. Okay, so here are some shepherding duties. Our job is to know the sheep. To pray for the sheep, to serve the sheep, to provide for the sheep, to love the sheep, and to seek the joy of the sheep. That's our job. Your job, the sheeping duties. Make yourselves known to the shepherds. Pray for your shepherds. Submit to your shepherds. Obey your shepherds. Trust your shepherds. Think the best of your shepherds and seek the joy of your shepherds. I already feel chastised by my own words. I wrote them and I feel chastised by them. I hesitated to write them. I could have stopped already. And some of you are thinking you should have. But I, I could have stopped. I wanted to stop. I feel the burden of the task. It's enormous. It's impossible. We know many of you well. We don't know all of you well enough. We pray for you but not as we should. We serve you, but not always with an attitude of patience. We provide for you, but our words are sometimes not true. They're not always apt. They're not always seasoned with salt. We sometimes fail to protect you through ignorance, through neglect, through error. As much as we seek to love you, even on our best days, even when done well, we are still novices at love. We sometimes, in our serving and dutiful obeying, seek our own joy and not yours. But we desire these things. We desire to grow, to repent, and to seek afresh to do the following to know you, to speak with you, to reach out to you, to understand you. We just ask that you'd be gracious. There are 150 of you, there's three of us. That is not said to be an excuse. God has called us to the task. And we desire to grow into it. But it is one way that you can love us and bring us joy by being patient with us. We desire to grow in our prayer for you, to do so more regularly, more specifically as we know you better, to serve you, our sheep, our spiritual children, and the sacrifices that we make of our time and our energy, to provide for you by feeding you with God's word and biblical counsel, to protect you by having a watchful eye toward the threats that lurk in your own hearts, toward the threats to love and unity that always threaten to erupt within our church body, and to be on guard and to take steps against the threats of the world that would seek to devour you and your joy. We desire to love you with a determination to do all these things for your good and ultimately to seek your joy to delight in you as we walk with you through the valleys and rejoice with you in the battles won and find satisfaction in your growing Christian maturity. And there are no conditions attached to this. No quid pro quo, no tit for tat. This is not an agreement. If you do your job, we'll do ours. Our shepherd calls us, he calls us his under-shepherds. To serve with the same unconditioned love with which he lived, with which he died, and with which he continues to dispense his gifts. But there are some ways that you can bring us joy. And so as we end here, I'm just going to list off a few of them. We ask that you would, would do the following with sincerity and diligence as God gives you ability make yourself known to us, take some initiative. We don't know what we don't know. Some of you parents have been surprised when you found out the things that your children were dealing with in their life, outside of the home. Your, your kids thought you should know, but you didn't know. Right? That's how we feel sometimes regarding, regarding you, our spiritual children. So since we don't live with most of you, uh, we, we don't see behind your closed doors. We have no mystical insight into your hearts. You must share in order for us to know. There are many... Many here who have risked already, you've risked honesty and openness and have found that we have offered grace. We've offered mercy and the helping hand that was needed. So make yourself known to us and pray for us. We are only under shepherds called to an impossible task. We need the grace of God as much as you do. Bring us before the throne of grace so that we might better serve you as shepherds and spiritual fathers. Submit to our authority, not simply out of duty, but out of love for Jesus who commanded it. Recognize that we will have to give an account for your souls. So remember that your sin not only affects you and your family, but also Steve and Dave and I. Let us not simply walk with you as friends, but as shepherds with the strength that comes with the authority delegated to us by God. Let us bring that strength to bear for you for your best. Obey the shepherds. Seek to reject the spirit of autonomy and rebellion that infects our culture's heart. Listen and help us to execute the goals that we have set for our church family with the happy hearts that you hope your own children will obey you with in your own homes. I'm going to go back to that one for a second. Here's a simple, this is my hobby horse. Bill would be proud of me. Imagine, maybe you don't have to imagine very, very far here. This is not gonna, It's not a huge distance. You told your, your kids, we're going to have family dinner at six on Saturday. Be on time. And every time you say that, they're late. Coming in 15, 30 minutes later, is that a simple thing? Is that a big thing? Well, in one sense, it's a small thing. But in another sense, it's huge. It's huge for so many reasons. One that we've mentioned in the past is that this is... maybe. I, sorry, you guys probably all know where I'm going with this. But the family meal that I'm referring to is, is church. The worship service, the service of the, the almighty triune God of the universe... If you were a boss with authority, you'd fire people who did what you do. Not not all of you. And not all of you all the time. But come on, you know who you are. Here's what we're asking you. Something simple. We're going to start with something simple. Manage your time so that you can be on time to worship with your family. We're asking you not as friends. Friends. But as your shepherds, as your spiritual fathers, are you prickled? Are you offended? Well, that's something to bring to the cross. Because there are much more difficult things in life that you need your shepherds for. And I don't say that out of arrogance, as if you need me. No, God has given us shepherds. I know you need it because God has orchestrated it this way. Okay few other things, trust. Not that we're perfect men who will rule inerrantly, but trust us as you trust that God has placed us here for a purpose, and ultimately, we, not you, will have to give an account for how the church has been ruled. Think the best of us. The natural response of the human heart is criticism and not encouragement. Doubt, not faith. So fight against this and seek to think the best of us. We want to serve you and to lead you well. Lastly, seek the joy of your shepherds. We have no greater joy than to see you walking in truth. So, walk in truth. Let us help you do that. Let us see it when it happens. Even if it's a simple text or a note, just sharing what God has been doing in or through you. Make our joy by complete by being like-minded. Having the same love being one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, considering each other better than yourselves. Sheep and shepherds have some important differences in the way that we get there, but our goal toward each other is the same. We're called to seek one another's joy, to be an active part in bringing that joy to life. So as you go home today, think about and discuss in the coming days how we can, as a believing community, make one another's mutual joy the blessed priority that we're called to make it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can look to you. We can look to you as a sovereign God, omnipotent and able, strong, And so we come before you in our weakness, and we ask that these things that we've been called to do as shepherds and as sheep, that you would give us the strength to do them. And not just strength, but an eagerness, a vitality, a vigorousness, a sense of initiative and hope. Convict us where we need to be convicted, and then give us the the ability to carry this out. That we might have a, a passion for the joy of those around us. We thank you now that though we come before you and we have done all of this imperfectly and we know that there will be struggles in the future, that you nevertheless, because of the the perfect work of Jesus, you invite us to sit down to a meal. Give us hungry and happy hearts, full of joy. We pray this in Jesus' name.